0: Hello and
1: welcome to the Presto Classical Podcast. For the first time I'm able to welcome back a guest. While he of course remains the doyen of classical music writing and broadcasting in the UK, I'd like to think that Rob Cowan is best known these days, to a few people at least, as the inaugural guest on the Presto Classical Podcast. Welcome back to the show Rob. Thank you very much Paul, I'm delighted to be here. On the show today, we'll be using the release of three box sets, assisted by some archive interview found at the bottom of Rob shed, to explore the recordings of three musicians who, though all had Eastern European roots, had careers to varying degrees of success in the USA. First of all, the Hungarian pianist Andor Foldes, whose complete DG recordings have recently been compiled on Eloquence. His compatriot, the conductor Antal Dorati, whose recordings for the Mercury label have also recently been released on eloquence. And finally, an artist who, although he became one of the most iconic American musicians of the 20th century, was also an emigrant at the ripe old age of one, Isaac Stern, whose complete analogue recordings for Columbia have been boxed up by Sony on 75 CDs. We begin with a pianist who I actually have to confess, Rob, my ignorance to before we planned this show, Andor Foldes, and discovering this pianist on this new 19-CD compilation has been a hugely enjoyable experience. Can you give me an introduction to the career and artistry of this somewhat unassuming virtuoso? Well, Andor Foldes, when he went to America in, I
2: think, 1939, the only things he had with him were a, a photocopy of the autograph score of Bartók's Second Piano Concerto, which has included the uh, recording of him playing this. Is the first ever recording of him playing a recording of the Bartok Second Piano Concerto actually is in this set, and a $50 bill, that's all he came with. He'd been um, a fairly spectacular young pianist when he was back in Hungary, um Bartók knew him quite well. Well, what, uh, something that uh, rather entertained me and tells you something about uh, Foldus's playing of Bartók. I mean, do you take to Folders' Bartók style in comparison to, say, um, George Shandor, for example, who was recording Bartók at around the same time or Zolkan Kochis much later? How did it affect you? Because then I'll, I'll bounce back off you.
1: Well, I found his playing of Bartók quite lyrical, actually, much more lyrical than I might be expecting from other pianists that you've mentioned, Gyorgy Sandor in particular. And something that's very much a style of Bartók's music that is perhaps overlooked. Everyone thinks of the percussiveness of the Allegro Barbaro, for example. Um, But here, with Foldes' playing, there's much more lyrical qualities to it. Now that's
2: very interesting you should say that because uh, apparently when he was playing, I think the second piano concerto or practicing it, um, Bartók uh, was standing near him and he tapped him on the shoulder and he said please don't be so Bartokish <laughs> in the way you play it which is sort of quite well known you know a lot of people they thought it was, a, it was um, uh, an excuse to go bashing around at the piano now if you listen to Bartók himself especially there's a, a, a wonderful recording of a broadcaster part of the second piano concerto with I think Ernest Orsame conducting and it's just like an improvisation and actually the slow movement of the rec- uh, the uh, recording that's in the box is quite like that Bartók performance. The outer side, if you know the recordings of Geza Under in the concertos, he's wonderful in the second. And um, the DG recording, it's a little bit like that. A very sort of great motor energy, wonderful sense of rhythm, very supple and lots of colour and light and shade. Unlike, say, somebody like Polini, who really goes out. In fact, I have to say, I saw Polini play the piece... Live twice with Rattle conducting, Sir Simon Rattle conducting, and I found it incredibly aggressive. And and Folges is nothing like that. There are two recordings of the sonata, the Bartok piano sonata, which is an absolutely wonderful work which he was devoted to. The second one's probably better, but I'd agree with you. There is a a lyrical slant to his playing, and also. They are such fastidiously prepared performances. You know, everything is played with total precision and a lightness of touch. And where it needs to get to quite aggressive and rhythmic, like in the first movement of Out of Doors or in the first and last movements of the sonata, he, he, he obliges, and the folk-like pieces are wonderful as well. It's just a joy to hear somebody who is so into the music and has prepared his interpretations with so much thought. Thank you.
1: The majority of this set is actually devoted to Beethoven. Rob can you pick a particular excerpt uh, that you'd like to share of his Beethoven performances? Well
2: I've always been a great um, fan of Solomon playing the Waldstein sonata but I don't think I've heard a performance which has as a level of precision and finesse as well as rhythmic drive that that compares with the foldish recording that's in this box i think it's, it's absolutely marvelous i've played it two or three times since i received the set
1: Yeah, Rob, I really enjoyed this. There's an incredible sense of tension and release just in the opening excerpt that we've managed to play here. That's absolutely perhaps, that's perhaps symbolic of the whole his whole Beethoven recordings uh here.
2: Yes, I mean the, the virtually half the sonatas are included in this set. I wish we'd had a hammer clavier from him, um, but you know, we've got lots of the middle sonatas and he and variations, the C minor variations, he's brilliant in those. Uh, and various concertos uh, the mozart is is wonderful he ha real poise his collaborations with his berlin colleagues um are are wonderful and I think the Bamberg Symphony is there, i think in one of them or one or two of them fabulous um Fabulous playing.
1: There's also a wonderful disc of music from his Adopted Homeland featuring sonatas by Aaron Copland and works by Samuel Barber. Well, it's
2: funny you should say that because last night I was listening to the last movement of Copland's sonata which is the most wonderful work. And the way he sustains... That last movement, that slow last movement, which is a sort of pianistic equivalent of the finale of Vaughan Williams' Sixth Symphony, I suppose you could say. That same sense of desolation is absolutely wonderful. Wonderful.
1: I was astonished to read in the absolutely exemplary liner notes in this set by Stephen Siak about the extraordinary work schedule that was required of Folders when he arrived in the States. A two week engagement at Radio City Music Hall, for example, in which he was required to wear tails for 12 hours a day and had to play the first movement of Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto four times. Uh, and also concerts where he had to physically lift his piano on stage before he could perform. How typical is this of performers at this time?
2: Well, it actually sounds like a film called Carry On Folders. (laughs) I can't
1: can't imagine
2: how he he pulled all that off. But look, look what was happening in America at that time. Arthur Rubenstein, to to take one example, who uh, was active on the concert platform, incredibly busy for eight decades. And kept going all the time. Uh, Horovitz, who who worked himself into virtually into a nervous breakdown in 1953 when he had to retire for a number of years before he came back. So I mean that sort of work. The the Americans drove you hard. I mean, if you had a, a, a talent, they would expect you to deliver big time for the radio audience and the concert audience. So um, it wasn't that. I reckon being in, in sort of tales for 12 hours and doing the Tchaikovsky B-flat first movement um, numerous times. Uh, maybe that's a little bit uh, extreme. But, you know, that sort of thing, playing I think Earl Wilde was another one who, during the war, for example played an awful lot gave loads and loads of concerts and there's that whole uh, wartime ethos where uh, musicians used to travel all around the place giving hundreds and hundreds of recitals it wasn't that unusual
1: perhaps in an age before everything was recorded for posterity forever there was less of a concern that everything had to be note perfect and things could be more off the cuff
2: well, thank goodness. I mean, one of the great things, you know, this this is the great thing about live recording. And actually, when I was talking to Isaac Stern, I interviewed him a couple of times. Um, he conceded that, you know, although some artists didn't like doing live recordings, there was something that you could, that there were benefits. And I think with folders, there are live recordings of folders, not many, um, And then he went on after DG to do uh, recordings for EMI, did some Schubert. But I think this DG set, um, in fact, somewhere, if um, you want to spend a couple of years looking, somewhere in this front room, (laughs) I've got the the original Bartok DG set on four LPs. It's not the complete Bartok piano uh, works. There are some wonderful pieces that aren't there, like the Bagatelles, which are up there with the, Vizion fugitive of Prokofiev, but virtually all the great works are included. And as a as an example of intelligent, sensitive, considered, spontaneous, beautifully polished piano playing you won't get. I, mean, I don't think there's been a set issue this year that's better.
1: Yes, it's certainly one of the finest reissue sets that I've come yeah. across this year, definitely. Absolutely,
2: uh, absolutely.
1: Well, alongside all that time playing the piano, he did manage to find time for some arrangements of uh, orchestral works. And uh, as a final example of his artistry, here is his arrangement from Kudai's, another friend of his and compatriot. Here's the intermezzo from the Harry Yanov suite. So, while the Folders set gave us an opportunity to compare pianists in the same repertoire, a four-CD retrospective of another compatriot who moved to the States, the conductor Antal Dorati, gives us an opportunity to compare different approaches by the same artist to the same piece. Rob, can you introduce the performances of Mozart's 40th symphony, G minor Kirkel 550, from Minneapolis in 1953, and one from the LSO in 1961?
2: Well, you know... Um... <laughs> I always think of the Minneapolis recordings of Dorati a bit like boot camp. You know, everything <laughs> is pushed to the absolute limit and marched at top speed. Um, things like the Rise of Spring and... Um, uh, Tchaikovsky, various works by Tchaikovsky, the early recordings that he made, the mono recordings, are thrilling. Um, the Mozart G minor, well, I love the LSO stuff that he did for Mercury, you know, that that living, present sound, close balance, a bit like being in the orchestra or on the rostrum, you know, you have that immediacy in terms of the sound. And the, there's a big difference between the uh, the two recordings. If you take the first movement, the opening of the first movement, The earlier recording is very much faster, um, and the later one, much more open, much more air around the notes. They both um, include the first movement repeat, although actually um, Durati doesn't play the last movement repeat in Minneapolis, so they're not exactly the same. But the LSO is so much more expressive an instrument than the Minneapolis Symphony. Now, Minneapolis is great, you know. Either of his recordings of the Rise of Spring, thrilling, absolutely thrilling, but I'm not sure it's the greatest orchestra for uh, uh, Mozart and Haydn, so I'm glad that most of the recordings here uh, with the LSO Philharmonia Hungarica or the Bar Festival Orchestra. So, But let, let's com- compare those two versions of the g I think people would be quite interested to hear just how different they are.
1: So here is the version from Minneapolis. And here is the version with the LSO.
2: eloquence discs are marvellously annotated um, that uh, gives the impression that he found the uh, earlier one more exciting but I, I do prefer the, uh, the later one and the and Philharmonia Hungarica was made up of, of uh, musicians in exile from the Hungarian uprising in 1956 gathered together uh, and formed a terrific band. And, of course, they went on to record... They, there are some recordings in this box set, they went on to record all the Haydn symphonies for Decca.
1: So these recordings were made for the Mercury record label with their famous Living present sound. What makes these recordings and the Mercury label so special? Well, I think when I was a kid, <laughs>
2: or when I was a youngster, I should say, <laughs> and beginning to listening to listen to stereo records... I tell you, I'm not uh, greatly in in, in favour of sort of marketing ploys, but if you wanted a stereo record, if the original Mercury LPs had. St- Dario, right across the top of the the record in big, great sort of 90-point letters. It was was fantastic. And loads and loads of colour. I remember the Rite of Spring with Durati and the Minneapolis Symphony Orchestra. There were big close-up of fern leaves on the front. Talk about socket to you, but it did reflect the technique of recording, which was very close-balancing, very antiphonal, very directional stereo uh, drums especially in uh, Minneapolis timpani and bass drum that would shake your joists I mean they were so loud um, especially in big percussive works or or romantic works of course it doesn't quite apply to Haydn and Mozart not unless you're going to do something very silly Uh, but still there is that element of being there that element of actually being close to the orchestra which I think is is it's impressive and important and still sounds marvellous. You know, if you've got decent speakers or, or decent um, headphones, uh, you can listen to them. They, 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 de- they really deliver a lot. So, and as I said, the terrific performance, a good set, really good set.
1: And we also have over 100 titles on the Mercury Living Presence label, available either as a Presto CD or as a download. Now, Antel Dorati had a fantastic career in America and his recordings that he made in the States are still much loved on both sides of the pond. Can you give me an overview of his U.S. career working as he did with several U.S. orchestras?
2: Yes. Uh, it is, I must tell you something funny. When I when I was uh, broadcasting for Radio 3, and you know, I I said, you know, now I'm told Dorati conducting the Minneapolis Symphony Orchestra. Somebody wrote, it's not Dorati, it's Dorothy. <laughs> you know, f- friend of Dorothy. <laughs> you know, Dorothy, it's Dorothy. So I, I asked, I, I looked into this and somebody said, yes, he had something to say about that. He said, look, I don't, if you call me, said, he said, somebody said, what should I call you, Dorothy or Dorati? He said, I don't mind what you call me, just call me. that was his attitude. Yes, I mean, he was in charge of the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, the Minneapolis Symphony Orchestra. Then he went on to conduct the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, came over here to a lot of work with the London Symphony Orchestra. But I think it was the Minneapolis which I think he had taken over. Ormandy had conducted it, Metropolis had conducted it. And with the Northrop Auditorium, which is where the majority maybe even all of the Mercury recordings were made, Um, that gave the orchestra that um, sort of hermetically sealed sound, that dramatic impact, both in mono and stereo. And this whole living presence thing uh, really did achieve legendary status. So, yeah, I've, uh, then as, as I say, he came over. He did stuff in Europe, he did stuff in with the Philharmonia Hungarica, went to conduct the Israel Philharmonic or the Zamala Six on on uh, one of the um Israel labels, which is, is very interesting. He conducted the Royal Philharmonic, he was conducting then he he did all the Beethoven symphonies with the RPO for D G and I don't know whether that's ever been reissued. But the only time I ever saw him live was at the Albert Hall conducting Beethoven's ninth with the I'm sure it was the RPO.
1: We've got one more excerpt from Durati to listen to, and that's the opening of Mendelssohn's Italian Symphony, also uh, with the Minneapolis Symphony, and that's on eloquence.
2: Yeah, that's that's on eloquence, as you say. Now, this, I think, works, because um, although, like Schulte, like Toscanini, um, he doesn't play the important first movement exposition repeat, it has such drive... Um, and And frankly I don't think the drive is particularly appropriate in the Mozart G minor symphony, but I think it certainly is here and it it throws the the, the windows open, lets the sun in and it's a real it's a real shot of adrenaline. I did like this performance a lot.
1: with everything that Durati conducts there is that sense of great energy and also very warm relations with his players as opposed to some famous conductors of the 20th century people like Zell, Reiner who you know became known as Martinets actually Durati is actually a harbinger of things to come and a much more collegiate uh, behaviour and attitude towards his players.
2: Yes, absolutely right. I've spoken to a lot of people who liked him enormously, and they played with spirit because he wanted them to play with spirit, and he allowed them to understand why playing with spirit was so important. And I think, you know, uh, I as as I was writing about the new Fritz Reiner set on Sony Classical with the Pittsburgh Symphony, and I said um, I've written it for gramophone, and and um, I said, you know, you can hear the fear. That's not. <laughs> You know, Ooh. that's not the case with with uh, Dorati. You don't hear any fear there. You just hear joy and excitement. And, you know, excitement might seem like a dirty word um, amongst the cognoscenti because, you know, music's not supposed to be exciting. But it should be a piece like that or loads of the other works that he did. I've got, I think, all the Living Presence records and I, I cherish them.
1: I mean, he was also famous for conducting that most congenial of composers, Haydn. And uh, he did become conductor laureate of three orchestras, the RPO, the yes. Stockholm and Detroit. So he must have been very yes. popular with those three orchestras, at least.
2: Yes, there are live recordings of him with Stockholm, I think, doing... Um, the, work, the work he conducted more than any other, the miraculous Mandarin Suite. I think he was he was known as Mr. Miraculous Mandarin uh, by the BBC Symphony. Um, and yes, no, he was he was great. You know, we we benefited a lot, and we still benefit a lot from the art of Durati, I think.
1: Well, the final member of our trio, and probably the most famous, a man whose tombstone simply reads Isaac Stern, fiddler but who achieved far more than that in a remarkable career that saw him meet five US presidents, assist in the saving of Carnegie Hall from destruction in 1960, and help establish the US National Endowment for the Arts. What, however, Rob, can you tell me about his most important contribution, that of his violin playing and musicianship in general?
2: Well, it's interesting, you know, uh, Paul, because I hear Stern as a toughie. He was a tough player. And I think of him as the Marlon Brando <laughs> of violin players. Um, except, if you know on the waterfront, he was a contender. You know, and but you know, there are things in this set. The analogue, the first of all, it's only analogue recordings. And that's great, because when it got into the digital era, his intonation began to wander. You know, the, the sound wasn't as lustrous as it was. He's nothing like Heifetz. You, you listen to him in short pieces, and apart from some Shimonovsky, which is exquisite, um, they haven't got that that sort of finely nuanced quality that Heifetz brought, where every bar was a different shade or a different colour. But things like the Bartok First Violin Concerto, which he, he did the first recording. On the um, attacks, it yes, it goes a little bit off center sometimes, but ah, the, oh, the feeling of exhilaration of first infatuation, which more or less inspired the piece in the first place, um, really comes across. And um, I got to know that piece through, and I still don't think there's a version to 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 match it. Stravinsky violin concerto with Stravinsky conducting again that tough, sinewy sound, which um, uh, really suits the work and of course Stravinsky's incisive conducting also Bartok's second concerto with uh, Bernstein things with Ormandy lots of lovely stuff the stern rose trio fantastic stuff uh, the, the the group were tight they they were a really tight ensemble and yet extremely expressive as well the Sturman, brilliant pianist, lots of light and shade in his playing. Leonard Rose, a wonderful support for the bass line and Stern himself, extremely uh, expressive, probably more expressive in chamber music uh, than in anything else. But I think among the highlights of the set are the recordings of the Prades Festival, the Casals Festival. In particular, uh, the Brahms Second, Quintet, Opus 111. Opus 111 is a pretty good opus number for great music. Um, But the opening of the Brahms Quintet with Stern, with um, Portotelier, etc., it's just like the opening, say, Fudvangler opening the Brahms' Third Symphony. It has this arm, oh it rockets you to the skies. I, I think it was recorded in the middle of the night. I seem to remember reading at uh, some time. And you can imagine them saying, oh, we, there's nothing else in the world to do. It's three o'clock in the morning. Do you agree with me, everyone? We've got to record Brahms' second quintet because that's what it feels like. And you listen to that opening and, boy, that is music making. Thank mm-hmm.
1: So that's the opening of Brahms' second string quintet with Isaac Stern violin, Milton Thomas viola, Milton Katim's viola, Alexander Schneider violin, and Paul Tortellier cello. Yeah, I was absolutely blown away by this, Rob. This is one of the finest Brahms chamber music performances I think I've ever heard. It is a performance of absolutely staggering emotional intensity. And and one thing... I'm so glad you agree. One thing I noticed, a proper attention to Brahms' tempo markings, not too fast, but with energy. So many performers think with energy must mean fast. Well, that isn't the case at all. And here they're scrupulous.
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And the point you make is is so valid because, you know, observing uh, tempo markings and dynamic markings is all well and good if you don't have to ask yourself whether the markings are right. Because if you do that, then you haven't really played them properly. You haven't projected them properly. But as you quite rightly say, they have done that and, and do it wonderfully
1: well. For my first excerpt from this set, I've also picked something from the Prades Festival and that's the uh, performance of the Schubert Quintet, here's an excerpt from the slow movement. Well, Rob, they don't make them like that anymore, do they?
2: (sighs) Well, you know, somebody... I've got a blog uh, um, and uh, I've been doing um, uh, a little article on uh, uh, sets that might be suitable for Christmas presents. I know it's early, but I thought I'd get in so people can order from Presto Classical uh, in time, so they get the stuff in time. Somebody came on in response to the piece and asked me whether um, I what what versions of the Schubert Quintet I would recommend and the two greatest for me completely unlike uh, that one with uh, Casals and Stern and one with Heifetz and Piatogorsky uh, the heifetz Piatogorsky is like a fast lane trip you know terribly intense but joyous all the same And the one with Stern um, is much more relaxed, just as intense, but so lyrical. And that slow movement and... I mean, I'm so glad you chose it because it's it's it is definitely one of the highlights of the set
1: yes I picked that before I realized that that was one of your favorite versions so we obviously think oh, alike it's, it's, we don't don't we just don't we just <laughs> so that's uh Isaac Stern on violin Alexander Schneider on violin Milton Cattim's on viola and the uh, not too shabby Paul Totellier in Pablo Casals on cello <laughs>
2: <laughs> quite a combination there quite a combo eh? yeah
1: brilliant I believe, Rob, you're actually fortunate enough to meet Isaac Stern and have some archive interview footage to share. Yes, he was very interesting, a very likeable
2: guy. We, we uh, spoke about a number of topics to do with music, to do with his attitude, to the be the best uh, context for performing, the best atmosphere, the best uh, state of mind to be in. And he has some very interesting things to say about the importance of silence.
3: We don't know today, for example, what silence is. I have it a little bit in the country in Connecticut, where I can almost hear a, a blade of grass bend, because except for an aeroplane once in a while, but there are no trains, and I'm not on a main road. But there is—you stop if you live in a city. There is literally silence is unknown. Scent the scent of the body, the scent of the the, the scent of or lack of it, the scent of the earth. These are different qualities. They have a direct effect on how you speak, play, how you make music, how you listen to music. There is, there is a very real effect of, of life on the way you use an instrument. Uh, the speed of uh, the quality of food, the speed of travel, the uh, the constant intrusion of the television, which is a basic fact of our life, which has changed everything in every way we think, whether we like it or not. Unless you're a hermit living in a mountain and back on a back road somewhere, you cannot but be influenced. So that any attempt to recreate the totality of the vision, the instinct, the reaction to a given stimulus at that time can, at best, only be a somewhat distant approximation. To take it as a matter of study, learning, knowledge, and insight is important. To take it as the only act of faith is nonsense. Do you think that an interpreter ideally really needs, at least for for some part of his life, to get back to, to silence? I think that eventually... In silence sometimes or in thought. He has to get back to thought, or whatever allows him to think. Wherever he can think. I was bothered by a certain phrase that I was wondering about. It sounds silly. In in the opening of the Beethoven Triple Concerto. And I was all alone up in the country, and I was swimming in my pool, going back and forth and just humming it in my head. And I suddenly stopped. And sang it to myself and I was all alone and I suddenly realized where the meter and what the thing should have been and despite the fact of bad edition, exactly how what I felt which is what I'm doing now I may be wrong I may do it differently. here but that is what that's how I came to a certain decision in a tiny thing which will make no difference to you or to anybody else listen but it makes a big difference to me
1: well, thanks. That's fascinating. And it actually chimes with a lot of what my last guest was speaking about, Jess Gillam. Now, those are two artists very different. Uh, you couldn't think of two artists more different, a uh, young saxophonist and one of the finest musicians of the 20th century. But they both placed very strong importance on this and finding time away from the hubbub to really focus on their art.
2: Uh- all the arts it's it's incredibly important of course it's important with uh, the visual arts to to get that sense of space, which I suppose is the the visual uh, equivalent of silence and when you're reading or contemplating poetry, the space between the words is terribly important and I think a great performer um, the 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 silences are as expressive um, as the notes themselves, you know, they tell you so much. I'll never forget hearing a um, a young Japanese harpist at, a, at the um, uh, one of the schools of music where I attended a concert of a friend, a friend's child. And she came on, she was a tiny little thing with this harp. And she just played a folk tune, but it was simply the space between the notes that made her performance so memorable, the simplicity. It's the sort of thing you can't learn. You know, you spend your time going to a college to learn things, but you take away the things you can't learn. And those are the ones, those are the things that sort you out from people who are maybe more mediocre as musicians. But no, you know, it's very interesting. Stern also, of course, well known for his... um, collaborations with a number of people. We've spoken about the Stern Rose Stoneman Trio, but also playing with um, Emmanuel Yo-Yo Ma, and Jamie Laredo, and he had some very interesting things to say about the way they interrelated and connected with each other. I mean, how would you characterise, I hope this is not too difficult a question, the individual personalities of Yo-Yo, of, of Manny and Jamie Laredo?
4: Hmm. Well, they're quite different quite different. Many will see a variety of approaches, and will want to try all of them before he decides on which one. And sometimes we have discussions, wide-ranging discussions, about whether to veer left or right or, or whatever, sometimes basic tempo. But inevitably, the music, like water, finds its own level. Yo-yo is Quicksilver, this um, consummate ease with which he plays the instrument, so that musical expression comes forth almost untroubled by any physical problem, and the only thing that we, we have to determine from time to time is what kind of a vibrato we'll use when we play the same phrase. But the wonderful thing about it is that each of us takes off in our own way, and we and we um, we don't mirror, we reflect each other's impetus in the musical idea. Jamie is absolutely happy about being a musician, and it it, it, it his his music making is always with a smile, and it's also he, he also has a wonderful, marvelous control of his instrument, and a marvelous sound. And when we all get excited and we start to go hell bent for leather. It's a very exciting thing, and nobody, nobody has to worry about anything else. We just listen to each other, and we match. It's a, it's a kind of um, joyous exuberance that uh, makes itself felt. I think that's what comes across, and also that we can be deeply and quietly introspective and thoughtful in music-making, because none of us has any worries about the strength of music being, being much more important than we are, that we recognize that the most difficult thing and the thing we strive for very often in performance, most difficult thing in music is the art of being simple, of making what comes out sound inevitable.
1: Isaac Stern, there a real central figure in twentieth-century music making. Somebody who worked with Pablo Casals, who was born in the late nineteenth century, and then working along with people like Yo-Yo Ma, still very much alive and working today. Yeah, and he was so respected by
2: people. It was a bit controversial sometimes in America, I suppose, his methods of education and the people that um, he connected with, and the people with um, who had other ideas about the way education should should go ahead, but he was a force for the good, no doubt about that, a charismatic, um, very sweet as a person to talk to, and I think a great musician. Everything came from the heart with Stern, even stuff like the Penderecki Violin Concerto, you know, Webern, which he recorded, the last thing in the world you would have expected this expansive uh, player to record, but he did um, record it successfully and um, there was nothing he wouldn't try his hand, even Fiddler on the Roof. Now, that's something I'm actually quite surprised isn't included in this set, because, of course, that's analogue, are the pieces he recorded for Fiddler on the Roof, which were lovely.
1: Yes, it's interesting you brought that up. Uh, Another a central part of Isaac Stern's identity perhaps was his Jewish roots. So yes. he, famously, he famously lamented that cultural exchanges during the Cold War were very simple affairs, he said. They send us their Jews from Odessa and we send our Jews from Odessa. <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's so true, that's so true, yeah.
1: And as an, as an example of this, here is uh, an excerpt from uh, Ernest Bloch's uh, From Jewish Life. So that's Isaac Stern on violin and Alexander Zakin on piano. That's a lovely disc of
2: Stern's, and it's funnily enough, given the fact that the high holy days of uh, the Jewish high holy days have just passed, and Simchat Torah, rejoicing in the law, which is what that's about, it's quite appropriate that we we play that piece at this particular time. But I don't think there's ever been a better recording of that complete suite. And it's very rarely played complete; only um, Nigun, which is the um, which which is the middle movement. Uh, but it's great. He plays it like Heifetz. He, he plays Block
1: brilliantly. And as a final example of Stern's artistry, we have an excerpt from the famous stern rose Istemin trio. Uh, uh, Rob, what have, what have you picked uh, from the standing recordings that they made together?
2: Well, I love the Brahms trios. You know, the first piano trio is absolutely fabulous. Um, the Beethoven trios are marvellous as well. I think the performance... That makes the biggest impact and takes up where the bush Serkin trio left off their famous recordings in the thirties and the forties of the E flat trio of Schubert, and they make the end of the work sound ho- so heroic. It's a it's a strange piece, um, the the second trio of Schubert, because it's austere like Winterizer on the one hand, but it's got this sense of celebration on the other. It uh, depends what mood you're in and what mood the players are in as to what's going to come to you from it. Uh, but I think they make it basically a positive piece, although in the second movement there is a sense of tragedy as well. So I think it's as good a an example as any to, to, to play of this uh, wonderful trio.
1: So that was the end of Schubert's uh, Second Piano Trio. After a performance of this, the New York Times writer Alan Hughes remarked, if it was not perfection, it was as close as human capacity would allow.
2: I'm sure that's right. I'm sure that's right.
1: And I was also interested earlier, you talked about a real sense of toughness uh, with Stern's playing, and that's very much what I got from this recording. Um, it also makes those more reflective moments even more moving because of the sort of exterior toughness uh, that's brought to the playing.
2: Well, you know, I, I, I don't know what you think, and I'd love to have your view, but it's the humanity of, of Stern's playing that comes across all the time that I that I love so much. There's fallibility there because he's not always technically up to, the, up to scratch in the way that David Eistrug and Heifetz uh, very often were. But there's that, that incredible sense of communication that, that comes across all the time that, that I marvel at because it's so real. It's wonderful to have a musician, and that's, that's true of all those, those players, especially that particular stern Rose stoneman trio, and of course with Ormandy and Bernstein and people like that who he collaborated with, and Casals, who we heard earlier. They wanted music to pick up where words have failed, and that's what music is all about, and Stern was a, a past master at achieving that goal.
1: We both uh, independently arrived at picking two excerpts from his chamber recordings. While there are many wonderful concerto performances in this box, is it fair to say that the real highlights are those chamber music performances, both with the Casals in Prades and the Stern Rose Istom
2: I think the great thing about Stern is the way he related to other musicians. Uh, both as people and as players, and uh, yes, the I mean the orchestral recordings are marvelous, both the ones we have here and ones that have been recorded live. Uh, but I think you're right. I'd absolutely agree with you. I think I think that at the end of the day, you listen to Stern relate to other players, and that's precisely what he's doing, relating to other players, and which makes this a very special set. I think. Um, if you don't know anything about chamber music, it seems to be a bit of a dirty word amongst people who think, you know, that it's, a, it's an elitist term, uh, which is just complete rubbish. Chamber music simply, I think room music, which I think was Percy Granger's preferred term, is better. But it's a few players getting together, tattling great music. Um, with all their hearts, with all their intellects, with all their intelligence. And that's something that Stern did on virtually every recording that he made.
1: It's a type of music where you really get to know the personalities of the players, isn't it?
2: You do. And you get to know the personalities of the composers as well, because the players, their main priority is to give you the music uh, as it is, you know, sock it to you straight from the hip. (laughs) That's what they do. That's what he does. And I'm not going to get away from that toughy um, image because it is part of it. You know, he'll confront you. He's a nose to nose artist. And uh, we need more of those rather than the effete uh, alternative, which doesn't always pay high dividends.
1: And what connects these musicians, apart from their careers in the USA, is their extraordinary dedication to their craft and hard work. Yet, sadly, while Isaac Stern is one of the most famous musicians of the 20th century, and Antal Dorati is much beloved by record collectors, posterity has perhaps not been so kind to Andor Foldes. Why do you think that might be the case, and how important are these reissues and compilations in making sure that great artists of the past are not forgotten?
2: Well you're asking <laughs> you're asking the right one about reissues. I think reissues are of immense importance. There was a producer I used to deal with at the BBC when I was on Radio 3. And I used to say to him all the time, he used to say, Oh, why have you got to keep on playing these archive recordings? <laughs> and I said, Look, I said, there are no old and new recordings. There are only good and bad recordings, you know. If if I suddenly play to you a recording of Isaac Stern doing the Bloch First Sonata or the um, uh, the Beethoven Concerto or whatever, and you've never heard it before and you're bowled over, it may not be new, but it's new to you. You've never heard it before. And if it sweeps everything off the board, uh, sweeps everything aside, then that's that's a a, a wonderful thing. You know, I've just got a set of record on the Parnassus label, three CD's. Of the Amar Hindemith Quartet, that's Paul Hindemith on the viola, uh, doing all sorts of things like the first recording ever of Bartok's Second Quartet. Now, and it's great; it's a wonderful performance. But you know, these things are things I've been listening to over the last year: Rimsky-Korsakov operas. Um, Oh you know in historic performances you hear the historic recordings of Duke Ellington who I think was America's greatest composer incidentally with Black Brown and Beige I mean I I love it every time you know I get these things through the door these live performances by the Czech Philharmonic under Vaclav Talik in Occupied Prague you know which has an intensity that no other performance is equal of that repertoire I think they are I think if I you and I and Matt you know could get together and form a radio station to play nothing but this 24/7 I I think you know we'd have the biggest audience of any radio station <laughs> I'm I'm not joking I really mean it because you know people are hungry for it they want to explore and the only way they can explore is if people have the uh, take the initiative to introduce them to these these wonderful recordings
1: Yeah, and I thank you for giving me the opportunity to uh, experience Andor Foldes, and in particular that performance of the Brahms Quintet, but which I had not heard before, and are both absolutely fabulous.
2: Yeah, look, it's been an absolute joy talking to you, Paul. I wish wish we could do this every day.
1: (laughs) Well, hopefully we'll have you back on the show before too long, but uh, thank you very much once again, Rob. Uh, It's always an absolute delight chatting to you, and uh, thank you to Matt Green for producing, and thanks to you for listening.
0: (music)